I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest is author Dan Riley, whose debut novel Fly Me was recently released to critical acclaim. Fly Me, set in a fictionalized Manhattan Beach, California in 1972, follows the story of Susie Whitman, a young stewardess at Grand Pacific Airlines who soon finds herself in the midst of a drug trafficking scheme taking place in the skies. It's a real page-turner, but somehow still takes its time to revel in the peculiarities of the early 1970s, surf culture, and stewing, as Susie calls it. Well-researched and perfectly paced, if you're looking for a great summer novel, I highly recommend it. I photographed Dan at the offices of GQ Magazine, where he also serves as the features editor, and you can see the portrait at williamjesslair.com slash imageculture. Here I am with writer Dan Riley. That's what you're born into, you know, yeah. like, that's what I mean. Like, you're, it's either, like, um, it's not even, it doesn't even have to be the city that you live in or whatever, like, you know, um, whatever. It's like, yeah, if, you're, if your parents are from somewhere else and they're, like, you know, they're from Cleveland and they, like, you just bring that with you. It's, it's more the, like, choosing to, um, you know, suffer along with some fan base that isn't your own or whatever, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. And that's what, like, obviously all American fandom of, of um, European soccer teams are like every time I try to be like maybe I should care more about this it's like no that feels so inauthentic so I I think also a big part of it is like the broadcasters right like I think I think a lot I mean a long time ago now but not even that long ago if you lived in a city those were the games you had access to you know to see on tv because you know and now because you can stream everything you can kind of just watch whatever you want so it sort of opens you up like like for instance I've been like I watch a lot of basketball, and yeah, I've been yeah. really into the Milwaukee Bucks oh, and yeah. the Philadelphia Seventy yeah, yeah. Sixers. Yeah, of course, no connection whatsoever. I just no, like but the yeah, teams. But, but that won't be like you probably won't like if if the entire team turns over. Oh you, yeah, I'm, you probably won't stick with that. You know, in that way that no, like, I'll follow players. That's the part that I don't understand is like when people are <laughs> like, I like chose to follow you know whatever Watford in the Premier League. Yeah, and, yeah. like they never finish higher than like 11th and like I have no and they're never going to get and it's just like why you know what, what they just you like get? the name Watford yeah I guess <laughs> like they have a cool like uh, they have a cool shield or whatever oh. it's just sort of and then but then I also get like it's it's sort of annoying to be an outside fan that like is about uh, you know uh, Barcelona or Real Madrid or whatever where it's sort of like okay like you've moved in with the you know all time greatest clubs and picking like the European, winners. European yeah. history. I don't really know what, what that's about either. So I wanted to, okay. So I, I wanted to ask you about one sport in particular. Oh yeah. So are you a big formula one fan? Um, I, I was for like three years, um, where I knew nothing about the sport. Um, I've always been a big sports fan. I love coming across a sport that, um, I know nothing about and like fully getting into it. And mm-hmm. that happened with formula one for me, um, where I, yeah, I had an opportunity. I started kind of following it. Then there was an opportunity to go, um, right about basically when they were trying to start a race in New York city, there was an opportunity to sort of like write a story about that. And their, I didn't realize that ever, that was ever a project. Yeah. I, I forget the, um, the exact, terms of how a new city like gets a race but Mm -hmm. it was deeply deeply sketchy with the head of formula one like it was 
all up to his discretion and there were all these bribes and all these contracts there are a lot and of all rando these... cities that have like, yeah major exactly Formula and you start to races. look at it and you're like okay like baku azerbaijan like yeah, you start like, to, where you did, start to yeah. do that thing where you, it starts to actually end up looking a lot like sort of like what the recent world cup bids have been which is like russia and Qatar and like all that and then you start to and it's like oh that makes sense that they're like is some level of corruption going on here and that, that <laughs> put it mildly yeah and that that head who his name is bernie eccleston like used to um whatever there were just like a, a million stories about him and so there was this agreement that they were actually going to do it right over like right out the window mm-hmm. over um like on the street course on the hudson across from midtown uh and they actually like they plotted it all out they even did an event with the the um, best driver at that time when i was writing that story and who seems to be um uh i think he's won a couple to start this season sebastian vettel sebastian vettel and vettel came and like was driving around these the the like street course uh-huh. with like cars on the road uh-huh. like which d- it seemed total. in a formula one car no in like uh whoever was putting it on like some spot like it wasn't like in like a Mercedes AMG. Like it wasn't or even that nice. Yeah, it was like a Kia or something <laughs> oh like that. My God, and, yeah. and so like, but just like, and you you start to go like, oh, you're very good at driving those like spaceships on the racetracks, but you also, of course, naturally would be the best um, driver at like this kind of car, also. Mm-hmm. And so it was just doing totally ridiculous stuff. And you know, like when you see in a movie. Um, you know, throwing on the handbrake and all that sort of stuff to like, you know, spinning his yeah, car around, yeah, yeah. All that kind you're of drifting stuff. like on, and mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, this, is, and you know, donuts or whatever. And we all had, they all made us, like when I, I so I was in the car with him and his. Wait, people, you were in the car with Sebastian Vettel? Yeah, for this, for like I said, it was this like press event. Well, I didn't. So, so, going to a press event is different than being in the car with right, Sebastian right, Vettel. Right. <laughs> I, I was pre- I was privileged press in this case because That's of wild. the story, That's cool. and and the piece was about him, and it was about uh red bull and um and the season that they had had and but it was also sort of like trying to figure out these questions of just like why like what what it would take for formula one to catch on in the u.s and i think the piece was like posed some theories about that and now however many years on from that like i think it was 2011 like i don't totally i think that like we have just decided what our auto racing culture is, which is NASCAR mm-hmm. and maybe IndyCar a few t- times of um, a year. And that like they, I would argue, kind of fundamentally misunderstood the fact, like what the, for lack of a better phrase, like two Americas are mm-hmm. and that and that Formula One actually is more in line with a different kind than um the nascar is like those those could be divided in those ways in the sense that it's more cosmopolitan it has you know uh race drivers who appear in um different kinds of commercials and different sorts of advertising blah blah Mm -hmm. blah and um but instead they, they sort of seem to muddle that up and and um had decided that their american race would be in austin so you have this very funny mashup every november of like texas and not like Austin, like indie rock music, Texas, like <laughs> hardcore, like Texas, uh, NASCAR, uh, Texas. Yeah. NASCAR, Texas, or, or just like, it's like really cheap. They really lean into like the, um, you know, the sort of like, uh, you know, boots and spurs and cowboy hats kind of, kind mm-hmm. of thing. And, um, and 
it seems to, it's been like a huge success, you know? And so like there's a, but, but, it, but it's the sort of thing where I think that they are like, we have our, um, our spot and now we don't necessarily need to do, try the New York thing out. I kind of can't imagine a formula way, uh, formula one race being like happening in New York city just cause the noise alone. Yeah, it, I mean, it think would be about, outrageously loud. <laughs> think about the, the amount of people. I mean, I feel like, I just feel like it'd be just a massive massive inconvenience to the entire city i mean it would be so it would be so outrageously loud so much in, worse than any in Manhattan, marathon. but i can't even imagine in in you know around where they would be driving how loud that would be and obviously when you do a, a street race in something like monaco or whatever like the entire city is turning up to this would just be like what is going on like mm-hmm. nobody would even know you know it's yeah. like that thing where a hundred different things can happen the first like, race would just be, yeah, people would just, be calling the police right, right, like right. everything it would be a nightmare so loud I, yeah 20, but, 20 cars or whatever it is the funny thing is that i have a friend who i have a friend who's really into formula one who's gotten me into it and he kind of makes this point that these races the, the like the the street races that right. you know monaco for instance right. all those tracks because they they're naturally restricted by by the city right so they're not actually as conducive to good racing, right? Because the cars have gotten wider no, over it's all, the it's years. A, it's all about qualifying, and so the mm-hmm. entire race is like over basically. If you can, it's, yeah, it's it more stays l- pretty stagnant unless someone crashes. Or right, right, right. But I don't know if that, you watched that, Baku, but there was like no, no everyone no. crashed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 such a weird, and I, that's actually actually kind of why I turned away from it. Is I actually ended up finding it like kind of deeply unfair and unsurprising, just in the sense that like you get more money when your team wins and if you get more money you get to develop more and you get to make a better car so Mm -hmm. you have 20 actually you have 10 different kinds of cars two two per team and they almost finish in the exact same order every time where it's just and it's completely done by money and Mm -hmm. it's just like it reminds me actually a lot of like the soccer leagues where you have um a complete cascading sort of you know class system of, of and so really you end up having um, maybe four drivers who have a chance at mm-hmm. the start of it. And the part that I found the most interesting was that like, that wasn't important. Um, the fact that like nobody could win, there were just all these smaller considerations that were like, you know, this team is trying to finish, like get, you know, two guys in the, like to finish 11th and 12th. And yeah. like, there are a million little tinkering things they're doing. They're not even trying to win. They're not trying to, it's like, they're trying to it's like if they come in sixth it's a big deal. yeah it's a huge yeah. deal yeah, and yeah. and even just like the little vi- so like over the i guess it's over the two days before the race you have the practice runs and the qualifying and like that to me actually was more interesting like there was just way more stuff going on you know during those during those um especially the qualifying session and it's, it's something like monaco um or where the order matters like that's where the entire race is won um and and uh i don't know there's just like more conversation between the uh engineers and the drivers at that stage because they Mm -hmm. can still mess with stuff and there's there's a lot more anger if like you know it's not going well or they there's something's not working and all those dynamics like are clearly why people who like it like it like they mm-hmm. like paying attention to all that stuff they you know they they tune into their channel on i mean that's the same thing with um nascar which is not a thing i've ever uh really gotten into but like i just know it's because 
I'm not interested in like all the little things that are going on. Like on TV, you see one thing and it, but if you are a fan and you are like tuned into the radio and you just like listening to the, um, the driver talk to his, uh, you know, pit crew or whatever. And like, that is like really interesting if you're really into it. It's the same way that like most people find golf super boring. And I like all the, um, sort of all those intricacies and stuff like that, or at least I'm like, know what's going on and therefore like can find interesting value in it but um but yeah i don't know like it's the sort of thing that you can get like super into and then it, i had the sustain the sustaining of it is is more challenging like when i just learned that like the last few years it's just been the mercedes cars it's just been a battle between t- teammates for like mm-hmm. the entire season which is like not that exciting at what point the reason i brought up formula one is because the the protagonist oh, of right, your right. book fly me right. is a not a formula one driver but a but a, a a race car driver or you know a track driver yep Susie whitman what when did you decide that was going to be part of her character because it's really important to, to how she sees everything totally and and right and so that um that character grows up in um in upstate new york which interestingly enough is basically during the 70s i think it was for at least 10 years formula one that was the u.s stop for formula one during that time was was at in um watkins watkins Glen, um at the racetrack there and um there's just sort of like a uh i i know what it's like like to go to a sporting event as a as a kid especially one that's as like in your face as as that you know kind of really melts your face and and the kind of thing that that could do to you as both a um, visceral experience that makes you want to do it, but also if you combine that with maybe a father who you get to sort of bond with in a in a garage by being extra capable mechanically, as she turns out that she is, combined with this obsession with speed that uh, is necessary throughout the book to have a person who has been sort of necessarily slowed down by this place that she moves, um, a beach town in Southern California called Sala Del Mar. Um, and, um, almost slowed down to the point of like stasis where you're looking around and everybody's just sunbathing and not going anywhere. Nobody, nobody ever leaves. And people who arrive there feel like they've finally made it to this place and they're sitting on the beach looking, you know, as I think she puts it like with their back turned to the news, the back back turned to the rest of the country and everything that's happening there. Uh, and so what would happen if somebody who has that sort of desire for speed, um, in her blood, put in a situation like that, you're going to, you're going to probably crave a way out for that. And so you kind of need that beneath the surface for what she ultimately starts to pursue, which is not just this job as a flight attendant, um, which is kind of interesting. Right. In that term, right. But back <laughs> the then book's most a, used word. Right, right, right. That's probably true if you command F the whole thing or whatever. But right. So as a, as a, as a stewardess for Grand Pacific Airlines, uh, and, and, uh, which which scratches some itches um, in the sense that you get to travel a lot and kind of move around a little bit and and it's it's kind of a you know it's kind of a a waitress e job that that she's not so into and ends up to th- uh, in that job um, you know due to some circumstances that uh, you know kind of leave her her um, uh, kind of put out after. After college, her sister, who's already flying for the airline, helps her helps get her in, and then um, and so she's she's going along with that, and there's some interesting opportunities there. But but then um, she has an opportunity to start to to kind of 
on on the sly um, go to flight school, and it would make it, it was it was always interesting to me to have this person who um, I was I was really into to racing when thinking about this. I was really into thinking about a lot of especially like women drivers from that time, or or even women that I grew up with who were just kind of exceedingly good at those sorts of of things, like not not just working uh, in a garage or 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 um, making and building things, but kind of just like you know we're we're good drivers, we're good uh, boat racers, we're motorcycle riders, we're um, some of some of whom had pilot's licenses and was like, this is the kind of person who would almost out of out of boredom and a little like desire for escapism, potentially go to flight school with a bunch of middle aged men who are looking to scratch, you know, maybe some midlife crises of their own, but be a 22 year old woman sitting in class there and and um, know enough of what she's doing to make that like not feel out, out of sorts that that she would uh, have a, a knack for this thing. And, and as she sort of um, intimates at a, at a few points in the book, like this is this is the thing. This is the thing I've been waiting for. I, I did this thing as a teenager um, to be in part close to my dad, but also to kind of beat up on the boys a little bit and and have a little fun racing um, go karts, and then and then finally kind of some some um, big car racing as a teenager. But ultimately, this thing like actually fulfills a, a greater kind of need for her. I guess what I'm interested in. Susie being sort of like a, a racer definitely plays into this, but so this was your first novel. So I'm thinking, and how long were you writing this? So um, I found notes for it about nine years before the book came out, but it was a it was probably two years at, at one point where it was really really working on it, and so there was there was basically this notion of situating a young woman about that age who is flying for a fictional airline in a town like the one I grew up in, which is Manhattan Beach, California, where at that time in the early 70s, it was a popular spot for people who worked for the airlines to live or kind of have it be their crash pad when they're stopping over in LAX, which is which mm-hmm. is just north of the town. And and so there were there were lots of notes like that. My, I have a family member who's 92 years old and was a um, stewardess herself in, in a slightly different era, but basically a generation earlier than than all of this. But she stayed. Um, so she uh, flew for a year and a half, and then when she got married, you had to quit, which were rules until the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And if you if you got married or pregnant, then that was it for you. But that 18 months burned like very brightly for her, so much so that she not only stayed very close to the airline where she worked, United, um, but also with LAX and worked in the communications department there for decades, and then ultimately started the what's called the Flight Path Museum, which is the this uh, a museum at LAX that's devoted to like the history of of um, flying in LA. Mm-hmm. And I had spent a bunch of time with her at this museum um, after she opened it, and um, and so all that sort of stuff was was coming together. So long answer to your question is. It was it was technically like nine years of of thinking about and, and working on this stuff, but but probably a couple of years where um, where this thing was really getting getting um, written there in the middle, and um, and that couple of years happened to coincide with my like sort of deepest um, interest in Formula One racing. <laughs> okay. Serendipitous. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's that's what I've I've found um, uh, not just when you are writing 
fiction, but also my my main stuff is editing feature magazine stories and writing feature magazine stories. And it is so funny just to um, see all the stuff that seeps in from um, not your sort of general interest, but like specifically what you are really into right at that at that moment, even if they're a little little um you know sideways to whatever the subject matter is you just sort of see preoccupations or whatever um are there other things that you saw that you saw seep into this book that were sort of random at the time or let's see i mean there sure there's there's i mean like there's there's a lot of stuff in there about um about the the music of that specific moment and um and you could probably you know have a a a billion different iterations of like what bands get big play Mm -hmm. in a book like this or what uh you know what shows or what uh what history is she bumping into and a lot of that was self-selecting in the sense that um you know there was there, there, there's collision and, and it's in some ways a lot of important things happen but there's also like things that um that uh, like you could choose a lot of different things if you wanted to bump into other historical moments, but like there was the the um, Rolling Stones North, this, their big nineteen seventy two North America tour, like mm-hmm. that the that the book runs into, um, and and a couple a couple Eagles tours and what a was couple. The, like, what was the motivation for those tours? Uh, I mean, th- those were just like a lot of people would say that like um, you know that that tour was was sort of like the. And this is highly contentious, but like probably the height of like the Rolling Stones, you know, it's right after Exile on Main Street comes out and and they're in their late 20s mm-hmm. and it's sort of the most raucous. And it's when um, the uh, uh, the Cocksucker Blues um, documentary is being filmed about them. And and so there's just like a lot of a lot of heat around that. And then you have, um, uh, you know, some some other I don't know, just kind of like great moments within within some other music things happening right there so that's like that's like one example of like a lot of times um what you are listening to right before you write might might make it into a thing or the vibe of something like that or um uh yeah there there was there was a lot of that sort of stuff i was reading a lot of um accounts of of flying in airlines and um and uh, little, you know, memoirs or books or journals or whatever that, um, that stewardesses had written, but that, that's obviously sort of more in line. It's the, the, um, the outside stuff It w- was definitely more, um, you know, maybe, maybe, um, some, some of those influences of, of where you're, where you're coming from there. I mean, the, another one would be, um, there's, there's a lot of time spent at, um, at Vassar and Yale during her, um, during her, her time in college. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had spent not as a not as a student, but just kind of um, visiting a lot of time in New Haven, and and there were just certain certain things about my time there that that felt useful as an outsider. As, Are you a note taker? Like, do you, do you have a journal or anything? Like, or is this, is it just recollection? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, like this this is such a this was such a weird thing because it, because I think I will do everything I did in this book differently, like in the future, in uh-huh. the sense that it dragged out so long and. A lot of that stuff was more returning to it, maybe a little bit after the fact, not knowing if things were intentional or not. Um, now with um, like uh, some new writing I've been doing, it will be more uh, you get you get ideas, you know where you're going, you know what you're looking for. If something comes up, you 
like if I if I see something or have a thought, it will be like, does this is this useful to you mm-hmm. uh, for this current project? If it's if it is, I might write a um, email to myself, or if it's not, you let it go. Whereas before, there it was not nearly as deliberate, and so it was more of these big um, swatches of things that were like, oh, I just did this, or I, I went here. Um, that some of the cities that she visits, some of the places um, are you know, places that I was either familiar with or had gone myself and could, um, kind of feel like, like Susie getting off the, getting off the plane and walking, walking around and, and being in a, in a certain, um, time and place. And, and, um, one, one thing that was great about the sort of like fact that the, this book is, is, um, set in 1972 and, and 1973 and, uh, obviously not having lived then was that, some of the elements that are most present in the book, airplanes and the beach, mm-hmm. are basically exactly the same as they were then, which cannot be said about you know most settings. It's this very weird, weird thing that when you're sitting on the beach in, uh, in Southern California and looking west, like it's basically going to look and feel and smell and um, the way that it did then, um, with a few notable exceptions like the amount of you know tar in the sand and things like that. But uh, and then and then airplanes, you know, like. Um, you basically know what what they feel like you know yeah. they the, the it's kind of an astonishing thing that like you know the big jumps that just uh you know absolutely human history changing leaps in aviation happen in the late 50s but then there hasn't been a ton since then Can in, you in smoke a way, on an airplane in 1972 yeah yeah that didn't, i cannot even i can't imagine i think that, that <laughs> didn't go away weirdly until maybe the the 80s or something like that but yeah oh yeah it was and that was one of the things you know that that the that the um, stewardesses were there to provide you know Mm -hmm. endless drinks and good food and cigarettes and i feel like the culture of being a stewardess has changed so much yeah you know what i mean oh yeah because it's so in your in your book it's so culty right it's culty and it's and it it was definitely more glamorous and it was the sort of thing that I, i don't i don't necessarily know what what the job might be now but um you know, maybe maybe in the way that some books, especially the, with the way that the food world has changed, maybe what it's like to be uh, to work in a restaurant. You know, like a, a where you feel like you're deeply part of a team. Um, and I, I mean, like you know, more your more your like higher end, buzzy, you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago restaurant versus like you know it, it, where you're you uh there's some glamour there's pride that's the sort of thing that you are like there, i don't want to just do this for a year you mm-hmm. know like i want to do this for as long as i can that and in the case of her sister who is married and hiding the fact um when we meet when we meet her uh so that she can continue to fly like it's sort of like you know this is this is totally my thing even if um Susie, who is a little brainier and a little more um, ambitious, even if those ambitions are vague, is kind of judgmental about that in the same way that, you know, that that uh, that sister might be judgmental of um, a, uh, you know, older sister who's perfectly happy being the, um, you know, the bartender at a cool restaurant, like mm-hmm. maybe a little longer than than uh, that that younger sister deems fit or something like that. But there was it was total glamour, the idea of um, having basically free free uh you know tickets around the world i think that when you landed the kinds of places that you got to stay was definitely more like luxurious Mm -hmm. and glamorous and you know the the royal hawaiian hotel 
uh, plays a part in this in the book in uh, in Honolulu, and that is like the sort of play. I don't know for sure, but my my guess would be that maybe they're not staying there. Um, you know, now if oh, you're, I, if you're I can't imagine. And so like there there it, it feels a little bit more like you know where do the Starwood points get you or whatever. And like yeah. it's a uh, and so in that sense it, it's changed. But there's also there's still that thing of like I get to go everywhere and mm-hmm. get to go all these places that that I would never in my life have thought that I get to go. And, um, and, and that appeal I think remains. And you talk to, to people who, who, um, do that now. And that's still very much the primary motivation, you know, of, of why you would want to do that. And, um, I just think it's funny that when you're talking about the cultiness, like in a lot of the books at that time or whatever, there was so much about the, like, where the, where the stews would hang out, you know, or where the pilot, like pilots here, there, there are these things kind of euphemistically called stew zoos, which would be like, you know, if you're in whatever town, um, it'd be like a house with, you know, where 12 women are living and, mm-hmm. you know, they're all in and out and that, that's why it made, it's made to work or certain, certain, um, buildings on the Upper East Side or whatever, where, you know, you kind of have easy access to, uh, LaGuardia and JFK, but you're, um, you know, uh, you're kind of moving in and out and everybody's, everybody's transient and, um, all that stuff was very, you know, obviously appealing. Obviously the flip side of the glamour was the kind of ridiculous standards where there were not just the marriage and pregnancy things, but the, you know, they're look there. It, it's based purely on your looks. Uh, you have to be over a certain height and under a certain height, over a certain weight and under a certain weight, uh, how, know how to make, how to do your makeup, know how to, um, you know, kind of check all these boxes, uh, no, obviously have to have the, the sort of service element. And so it, um, it was super restrictive in, in a million ways. And then, um, and then just shortly after this, this book takes place, there are some kind of landmark court cases that open up the, the just sort of legal, um, aspects of firing somebody because, um, they're married and, um, and, and pregnant or have children. And that obviously is no longer the case, mm-hmm. uh, after, after those sorts of landmark equal rights, um, gender discrimination cases. And so, so all that stuff was, it, it's just like such an interesting moment because it's, um, um, it really only kind of that, that, that sort of vision that you have of, uh, of a certain kind of uniform, you know, a certain kind of, uh, fashionable, uh, or, or for some of them, like outright, like kind of sexy uniform was actually a pretty small amount of time, but it's like very ingrained in the, Mm -hmm. in the, um, imagination of, of that kind of stuff. Were you always set on, on writing a female protagonist? For this book, definitely. Yeah. I mean, like the original idea was always, was always, um, through that, that kind of character, a young woman that age. And, um, what do you think that was? I don't know. I mean, I, I always, I mean, the, the, the person that, that this character was, was always, um, was, was pretty clear to me from the go, which is a younger woman in that time period who, is not an outright like um kind of uh you know marching alongside gloria steinem feminist but somebody who's just pretty more like low level annoyed with her station in life Mm -hmm. and kind of going to uh not not for the the cause of of um you know all women but more for herself sort of see 
if she can she can make a better situation for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is the fact that her interests run a little counter to to maybe the the you know. Uh, stereotypical idea of what young women were caring about or thinking about at that moment. And um, that starts with things like, uh, you know, working in, in garages and, and racing cars and, and ultimately flying airplanes and, and all that sort of stuff. But I just had a, a very specific person that I wanted to write a, a book about, and that happened to be a young woman. And um, and then the the rest of it was sort of uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question, but it was always just about Susie Whitman more than the fact that she was a young woman versus mm-hmm. a, a, a young man. And, um, and I, I just had this very interesting thing where I grew up around a lot of, um, a lot of women that were, uh, not Susie, but similar in that way where they were all these very, very strong willed women who like maybe just didn't like think in the macro terms of what mm-hmm. their what their femaleness was and that, that was like very interesting some of whom were straight some of whom were gay some of whom were uh you know interested in stereotypical female things some of whom weren't at all but but more than anything Are these family family members yeah mostly family members um uh you know ranging from grandparents to aunts to cousins to moms to my um you know my best friend in in uh, college to the where where there was just sort of this um this sense of like, uh, I, I am this person, but I'm not, I'm not doing it for sort of larger, uh, to fit into larger trends or whatever, mm-hmm. and cutting a kind of more singular, singular shape through that. And I think that that was, so in that sense, it was less like thinking too hard about it than being like, oh, there, I know a lot of these, uh, a lot of these kinds of women that, um, you know, uh, uh, think, think about the world and kind of, in kind of these different, different ways. And, um, and, and I guess in that sense, that became a very natural or, or at least confidence boosting way in the sense that it's like, you're not creating an alien here. You're creating somebody who has characteristics, mm-hmm. um, that are similar to all these women that, um, I grew up around. Um, and, and so in that sense, it was, um, you know, and then the more obvious answer is just like, in order to tell, to tell that story, which is not just about what it's like to be a stewardess in 1972, but throughout this book, what ends up happening is uncountable forces imparting themselves on this young woman in ways that are, you know, incredibly distressing and make her kind of have to grapple with her powerlessness. And that was something that I was always very interested in. Um, is just thinking about, you know, you, you start to think about your uh, mom or your sister or whatever, and you um, are go, oh, okay, well, like I can. This is very easy to internalize some of these some of these situations and and um, and get to that kind of place of constant indignation, which is an mm-hmm. interesting point to to write from as you as you take this character who's just being constantly kind of imparted upon in those ways and and where does that drive you and that becomes the entire engine of the book is sort of like these these things that are cutting against a person and can that give them the momentum to you know there's a there's a phrase in the book called the the momentum of last resort where after Mm -hmm. certain things that happen to Susie uh drive you to a place where you um you know you're you're starting to to be trapped in a corner a little bit and you know, you're just not gonna you're you're not gonna find that with a young man in the in the same way, and so that was that was always um, like the 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 uh, centerpiece, I think, to the whole to the whole um, story working. The way you use 
Updike in mm. this book. I thought totally it totally connects to what you're talking about. Because it is, it is a book where Susie is undercut by mostly male figures right. at you know it, it's 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 like a steady you're right it's the engine of the book is a steady force and everyone wants something from her you know what i right. mean it's it's very much uh she always asked to fill these roles and i guess i i i'm curious on two levels one i i love the way that updike came into that because he has that line in rabbit redux that right. really kind of becomes this weird almost mantra for Susie. right but then also I thought it was interesting because there there are a lot of these references to these kind of uh, touchstone postmodern novels. In the right, book. right, right, right. And there are elements to the book that kind of have that influence. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and that um that was a huge that's that's, that's interesting because like that that's a definitely um that going back to that other question like those were certain things that um when I was working on this I was definitely reading a lot from that era and especially there's a there's another character in the book Mike Singer who is uh, her sister's husband and fancies himself a writer and had had something of a career as a as a magazine journalist in New York and then ends up in California and does the thing um that that some uh you know writers and artists do which is sort of lamenting the the lack of seriousness and and concern with artistic endeavor that you might find in a sleepier beach town or whatever Mm -hmm. and um and so he is constantly sort of reading these magazines and has them around and Susie herself can engage on that level that maybe her sister can't about uh you know these big important things like the news and literature and whatever and so these books are around and um and um he is often uh, you know, kind of obnoxiously uh, playing like, uh, you know, tutor to her or whatever. And this is a book that he forces upon her. And, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, why, why these books and not other ones? Like, there could have, that's another one where there could have been, there could have been some other ones. But with, with that Updike book in particular, it's the strangest thing. I mean, um, everybody has different relationships with uh, his writing, who's read it. Mine is always like a a constant combination of of like total admiration and awe mixed with like you know repulsion yeah repulsion dis- <laughs> disgust whatever like which like, is exactly what Susie's right right is. right and, and I think that and so so like she wants to hate it but she kind of doesn't right and to be to be um, right and that like how important is that to to the to the story probably not like the 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 centermost. Um, uh, ideas, but it's just another force, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, this is a minor one. It's not just all, you know, um, as the, the story reveals sort of, uh, you know, drug dealers and, and, and powerful people and the law and, and people betraying her and all this stuff. Sometimes it's just culture at that moment, right. holding up something that's saying this is as, as, um, as I think Mike says, like, this is, this is the best we have, yeah. you know, like in, in, in hierarchy of taste. Right, it's like right, a good, right. Yeah. You have oh, to respect yeah, that, the that, that yeah. phrase, the hierarchy of yeah. taste, you know, and like, yeah. and, and holding that up and saying, um, so if you, if you can't get down with this, then, you know, what do you know? And, and even as, uh, you know, she under, like, right. There's, there's plenty to, to love in that book. And then also just like, it's sort of like, why do you, um, it reminds me of like writers I know where, uh, I am, totally enamored um with their uh whatever their style and their brain and everything and sometimes i'm just like i wish you had just said anything else you know Mm -hmm. or or said like said something different or told a different story or whatever given given your powers and um 
and I think that's maybe what she's she's feeling a little bit. But then there's like the the um, right there's there's um, Thomas Pynchon creeps in and James Salter and um, and Renata Adler and there's just like a, gr- a great set of kind of books from that from that moment that that kind of creep in and and so one one thing that's happening as all this sort of more radical stuff is happening to Susie is there's also like a, um, a, a, uh, crystallization of her own taste that's happening a little bit beneath the surface in a more benign way, uh, on a, on a reading and, and, um, a reading level, there's Sontag, there's Didion, like there's, there's really interesting stuff. And those, those kind of are plagiarizing are, Sontag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> right. Right. The idea of, uh, plagiarizing Sontag is like, is going to make you a better writer. And, um, and, uh, and so there, there's, there's kind of a fun, that, that stuff's kind of fun. And, um, in the sense that it, like, it, it is a little bit more, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of different, like, uh, lanes happening where there's some more extreme, uh, you know, life and death stuff happening at one level. And then some more sort of like internal, just like figuring out what kind of, what kind of stuff I like, uh, things happening at a different level. And, um, and w- one thing that's funny that I haven't thought about, but like one thing that is like, uh, funny about the book on that front is like nobody is uncertain about their music taste <laughs> like and that that is something that I find like deeply true about uh my my parents generation is that there was mm-hmm. not they weren't having the same conversations about like like do I do I know enough to val like d- decide whether this is good writing or art or whatever like with music people just like they were obsessed with it they knew everything there was to know about it and therefore could make like heavy heavy value judgments at all times mm-hmm. about like mm-hmm. what made a good especially in that in the in the case of these characters what made a good rock and roll band and what didn't and um and and that's sort of a a fun thing that even the characters that don't necessarily have you know the most overlap there there's just constant constant um uh, relatable points on that front of did you go did you see these guys when, what was it like, you know, kind of, kind of conversations that become the sort of, sort of background in a way that maybe sports might in a different kind of culture or something like that. I guess I, you know, cause you're right. I saw all these books like in the, you see all these books in come through the, through the novel and they, yeah, they are like these, it's almost like a little subplot, you know, or a little, you know, right. You're served this, this kind of uh, syllabus within the, the yeah, novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes you want to reread all those yeah, the, books and the, everything. Right, right, and well, one thing that's very funny about um, the the pension book in there too is like that was some real like inside baseball for for myself, which was the <laughs> fact that you have this writer who is, um, you know, um, maybe like <laughs> becoming. He's certainly not getting any work. He's he's going broke. His wife, who's who's flying as a as a stewardess, is um, making the only money for two people and yeah the 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 mike character and um and kind of lamenting the fact that he can't you know write like the way he wants to he's chasing some stories and blah 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 but thomas pynchon's gravity's rainbow comes out and mike is reading it and he's not distressed because it's so good but distressed that this person who wrote it is living in in the town and that is a true thing that um, Thomas Pynchon wrote *Gravity's Rainbow* while living in Manhattan Beach, California, where where um, the the town is based on, and it is the um, like whatever the opposite of the the vibes that people get off of a California beach town is that book, you know, and and that that I thought was doomsday. Such, yeah, yeah, it's just like such a such a um, you know an fu to to people who are like. Um, 
you know, this setting is to X, Y, or Z to be able to, uh, you know, make the kind of kind of uh, creative enterprise that I'm trying to do, you know, where, um, you know, I'm trying to write about uh, the beach and I'm stuck in this, this, you know, whatever the mountains and the middle of winter, like it's such bullshit if you, if, and, and I, I kind of loved that, um, that was a real thing that could, could hammer this character a little bit, um, by, uh, by being kind of the ultimate, ultimate proof of, of, uh, the fallacy of this sort of, this sort of argument that he's been telling himself that if only I can, you know, get back to New York, or if only I can get to a, a place where like art can be made, then, then I'm going to be salvaged. Um, and then what I, what I love about what ultimately happens with the pension story is he leaves and nobody ever hears from him again. And then whatever it is, uh, 26 years later, 36 years later, he writes Inherent Vice, which is set in the, a, a, a fictional town called Gordita Beach, which is the same fictional town as um, Sela Del Mar in my book. And uh, you I get to, to ask see, about this. Yeah. Right. And so you get to see like he, he it's not that 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 stuff was not being soaked in at all times. And I, I don't know enough about his, um, process of writing that book or whatever, if it was, um, uh, the, uh, about gravity's rainbow, if, if he was a, you know, uh, lock yourself in and write 10 hours a day type, or, you know, would kind of chip away and then mostly hang out. And I think mm-hmm. it was probably a combination of that, but I, I just love that, that, um, that that stuff, uh, he, he soaked it all up and then, I mean, the precision of the detail in Inherent Vice for somebody who, you know, had not had not lived there for for, you know, decades and decades is is pretty remarkable. And I found extremely fun to to read as a as a person who grew up a few blocks from where um, his apartment apparently was. And, and as a person who has also tried to. Right. Right. Trying to, trying to do that. Feeling. That sort of that sort of stuff. In a different and, way, obviously. But yeah, it was it was interesting. Like his his. Um, his version of it was like a much more, um, I mean, without spending too much time on inherent vice like that, there, there's a funny difference in the sense that the, um, that the main character in that book is, is, you know, kind of so high the entire time that everything's a little, a little wavy and a little surreal. And, um, and there's actually a, a kind of interesting sobriety at the center of, of fly me, given that it's a book about drug trafficking and there aren't the like long, um, you know, passages of perceptions They're and not like dream weird, sequences yeah, exactly, in your book. exactly. Yeah. And um, everything happens, right? Everything happens, and it's pretty, pretty clear. I think like what what's real and what it isn't, and all that sort of stuff. And so Susie's kind of serious. You know? she, she's yeah. very serious, and she's she's certainly not like um, there's sort of everybody around her is um, you know is fucked up in some way or another, or or there's partying going on, and she's usually kind of um, trying to keep it together a little bit. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's like a a little bit of a paranoia. I think that, I think that there's a thing of, um, when, when those forces are, you know, you kind of, you kind of have your hackles up a little bit, you're maybe not going to be as vulnerable. And, um, and, and that's just kind of a a different, uh, a different thing than, than they're almost, they almost take place in, um, the flammies a couple of years after inherent vice, but there, there's a funny difference of like, but whatever, that's every place where, you know, lots of people can be living completely different <laughs> subjective mm-hmm. realities and yeah. even a, even a small town. And, um, but yeah, I, I, one question I would ask Thomas Pynchon, if I ever had the chance is why he changed the name of, you know, the town and what, what, why change any places? Cause some of the places he writes about are real and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had my reasons for doing it, but like the, it's just kind reasons? of, Kind of well, one one thing was um, what became the 
the strongest reason I think there were there were a few, but it's just like when you write about a real place, the like possessiveness of people who know that place is mm-hmm. so strong, and they it, it's not about like losing yourself in the book. It's like about that they could never get across town in that amount of time, you know? It's like, what's the fidelity? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And it's where can I, where's the gotcha part of this? And that's a hard thing for writing um, about a different era, especially, you know, one that you didn't experience yourself about like, um, I'm sure that there are, there are anachronisms and mistakes on that front, but like I was, I tried to be pretty careful about it just to, because those are like the worst things when somebody's just reading to be like they would have never used that phrase or they the the, that um that kind of uh swim trunk wasn't around yet or whatever and um but yeah so so the kind of freedom to be like this is basically this place but sometimes if you need to accordion it down to a smaller situation or or widen it out a little bit or or uh people just need to get places faster there are lots of yeah there are lots of things you can do in that sense and and um uh and then the other one was just sort of like yeah, it was just like it was just much more fun to have a, an imaginary situation because um, the the place already was imaginary to me in the sense that the town for people who know it is so different now from it was twenty years ago and certainly forty years ago and the uh, way that you would you, you yeah it would just be like almost like a problem it would be distracting because it's so I think that there are like the bones and in a place like New York or other cities are strong enough that you're going to like recognize like the s- certain things, no matter what era you're writing about mm-hmm. in that town, it's, it's gotten, it's gotten weird. It's like definitely, it's definitely harder to, to recognize it aside from, like I said, the beach. And then like this little swatch of, of the town at the North end. So closest to the airport, uh, where there's some houses there that are just like, have not, have not been touched and that is interestingly enough where paul thomas anderson actually filmed some of the stuff for inherent vice because it's like stuck in amber and that, and that what you uh, what do you think about that adapt- i mean we were kind of talking a little bit before about about adapting these novels to film or, right. or possibly even adapting your novel to film what do you th- what do you think about that adapt- that inherent vice of the film um i i really enjoyed it and um and in a weird way, uh, it was like a pretty, pretty faithful, like straight adaptation, like, um, and in a, in a way that like was interesting because like we were talking about before, there is a ton you can do, um, to, to, um, you know, bite off just a small part of it or take it in completely different directions. It kind of was really faithful, which is what made it so weird. Yeah, and no it, was, was right, it was to... almost, it, exactly. It was almost harder to, Everyone's to, like, What's happening to follow movie? it. There was, there was some, um, you know, thing, I, I, I don't know for certain, but I don't think that there's, he has that sort of like voiceover in, in a lot of, um, or any of his other films mm-hmm. or, but I'm also, I'm also pretty in the tank for everything that guy does. And so it's hard to, you're a fan. <laughs> I am a big fan and it's hard to be like to, I only saw it once. Um, so maybe that's actually a sign that it wasn't like my favorite thing he's done. But, um, but there was, there was, uh, yeah, there was a lot I loved. I what's was actually, your, uh, what's your PTA favorite just um, for the record? Bo- Boogie Nights is my favorite movie of all time. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty easy. It's a great one. I think Phantom Thread was my favorite movie of last year. Yeah, me too. I thought it was crazy. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing though, to take like, 
I actually don't know the story of um, of how he started working on that project. You know, I, I remember that book um, coming out and it being, you know, a successful situation, but it wasn't that like this is definitely going to be mm-hmm. a movie and it's yeah. definitely going to be a movie by I was surprised because I don't think, I don't think that they have done an adaptation of another Pynchon um, novel. And so like that was interesting in and of itself. And I think I, I, I do remember Anderson saying at some point, like that was a huge hang up. Like people were like this, uh, you can never make a movie out of a Pynchon novel. And that was like a fun challenge to him to, to try to do it and felt like that, that one at least had was, the most kind of contained and most possible to do it, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. It was like your golden moment for for trying to adapt that material. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was like, I, you know, I have no idea how many how many sort of strands he has going at a time, but I can imagine that being at that point in his career where he had already had so much success, um, and yet also had to work to get things funded. Like I remember him saying. Um, something maybe in that same interview I was thinking about that like they were almost there with the money I think that was like a 30 million dollar movie or something and um, and the last thing that he had to promise was that they could put a girl in a bikini on the poster and he was like fine you know like it's a, it was like the last marketing thing because they were struggling so much there's it's not a bikini no no she <laughs> I think she uh, like that that character on the cover of the book which like I'm not a huge fan of, of like the character, like a photograph of a character, Mm -hmm. like, you know, being on the, on, on the cover, uh, or one that like, you really know what they, and it screws up your whole idea of, of, of whatever. But I, there, there's a representation on that cover that, um, I thought was pretty good, um, in terms of it, it, it evokes the era you have like this funny kind of like scraped knee, which, um, oh yeah. So the other thing that Susie does besides, race cars and and uh and flyer planes is she's a skateboarder and the the book starts with her kind of kind of um i didn't bum, notice this bumming a hill me. and you have you have somebody she's just a little more rough and tumble and mm-hmm. like i don't know i don't know how i feel about the phrase tomboy but there is something that's a little bit a little bit um you know um atypical and just sort of the 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 way she dresses her comportment the the fact that she takes no shit from people and that she's skating around town kind of, um, you know, biffing a little bit every once in a while. And, uh, and, and that, that kind of felt like that. There's a, there's a, a blase look on the face of that, that character. And, um, and yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, you know, that they, that they went there. That was the second cover that they had proposed. And I feel like it really nailed it when the fir- the first one was, was not my favorite. We should say that, that in addition to, to, I mean, this is your de- debut novel, and you're also a senior editor at GQ, you just put out a new story, right? Right, yeah. Um, in the May issue that's out right now, and it went online uh, yesterday, a story called The Great High School Imposter, and it is about a kid, a student from Ukraine who came over legally as part of this program um, for university students to come do service jobs in the United States during the summer. And very long and complicated story short, he decided he did not want to go back and got in with a pair of adults in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he had been for the summer, who 
between the three of them decided that um, one way for him to set, stay and pursue his dreams of higher education in the U.S. was for them to, quote unquote, adopt him and for him to enroll at the local high school, Harrisburg High, um, as uh, a freshman student who is five years younger than he actually was. And this whole plot goes into motion. And four years later, uh, he has risen to the, the top of the ranks of his high school. Mm-hmm. He's like a standout uh, student and community member, uh, valedictorian or close to it, won a bunch of scholarship money, um, has like uh, a bunch of community service awards, ROTC. He, model student. Model student. He, they named a day in Harrisburg Asher Potts <laughs> Day after him, which I, I love. And, it's like um, a Ferris Bueller plot. And he's about to go to this engineering school. And uh, again, kind of long story short, the parents um, end up turning him in. Um, for reasons that are interesting and he is found out and it turns out that he had applied for a passport as his fake self to go on a, a school trip with the local university uh, while and then also had had a um, you know deeply inappropriate relationship with a student who would have been his age had he been the age that he was saying but was five years younger than he was and um, and so is arrested does time in the US for o- over a year he's in prison is ultimately deported and that is sort of like the first um, third of this story and wow. And I got interested in this two years ago when he was arrested. And this sounds like a plot to an, another, <laughs> to, another to a novel. Yeah, yeah, no, another story. I mean, it was it was really amazing. And and what made it what made it really come off was so I'd been in touch with his attorneys who talked about him in these really interesting ways, just about the way his brain worked. And like, yes, he had screwed up royally and um, and broken some laws, but had also paid handsomely for those for those mistakes. And uh, but they were just like kind of amazed by this like unbridled ambition and, and belief in the U.S. and and what higher education could do and how he had basically taught himself English and was so proficient by the time he was arrested that he was teaching like English at the prison that he was in. And there's just like lots of interesting things I was hearing. And then. Last spring, uh, after I had sort of put the, all that on the back burner and not not been pursuing it too hard because he had been deported, I heard from him, and that kind of picked up this whole new, uh, what ends up becoming like probably the last two-thirds of the story, which is my time um, kind of talking to him and his watching his feelings about the United States and about where he's from in Ukraine mm-hmm. and some opportunities and lack thereof that he had there evolve. And then I ultimately went and spent um, time with him in October in his town um, and where he's back to being a university student and is basically five years after leaving between his sophomore and junior year to go to Pennsylvania, he's right back where he started from, only with even fewer opportunities because it had been sealed off by the crimes he had committed. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, just the way he talks and thinks, and um, and and the way his ambition had been, uh, like I said, the way he had thought about the U.S. and everything. And so yeah, that that's a pretty extraordinary story. But the sort of feature stories that I tr- I try to look forward to write, and then also edit those sorts of things all over the board from. Um, you know, culture, politics, news, crime, whatever. And, uh, 
and yeah, GQ is a really interesting place for that sort of work. We we do a number of pieces along those lines every every issue, and um, and there's a handful of us that work on that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Was it hard uh, working at the magazine while you're doing the book? What was your process like? So I, I basically wrote on weekends, um, almost exclusively. Sometimes in the mornings, if it was more like editing stuff, but it was really just like blocking out, um, you know, many many months of of. Uh, Saturdays and Sundays and I can't write like all day and so if I can get a situation where you know I just like know that between what I I, kind of treat those weekends like normal work days and so I usually get to the office pretty early anyway and so like let's say it's starting at 7 30 or 8 and going till lunch and maybe that's enough or try to do a little bit more and and that's sort of how that stuff gets done and and that's sort of how the next book is working too where it's like I, I can't really do it after days of work or whatever and so is there anything you want to say about this next book um, I know it's early I know it's very very early no it's just like very different than than this one um and and will be really exciting if it if it works and um and uh it's set it's set in you know the current moment uh it's a very compressed timeline it's just about five days it's in Bar- it's set in barcelona um during a uh kind of uh, a situation that that has these four characters who think that they're about to um to uh kind of hit these this these significant pivot points in their life and and kind of return to their their lives and deal with some major events that have happened it it freezes them in this place where they are um kind of trapped together and um and it's it's much more about those sort of like interpersonal relationships and dealing with those those pivots and so yeah it'll be it'll be really interesting to see like i said if it works because it's so it's so different it's so much more compressed you're doing different things with with characters and dialogue and um you know there's less there's less extreme action or big uh, arcs of of characters and stuff than like hitting four people when they're when they're sort of blisteringly hot uh, like where where the book begins is is at a, a very extreme moment and and from there you're kind of proceeding in the the outfall of that and so um it'll be interesting though it is super early and it's the sort of thing where it's like everything could change in this and um i just wanted to challenge myself after <clears throat> the last book which was sort of dragged on for a long time and i felt like it was written by several different writers and you were do- doing this constant thing where you're trying to catch it up to where you were um, I remember thinking it's like when you tie one shoe that, and then the other one feels loose and you're kind of just going back and forth and mm-hmm. trying to get like a, a balance out of it. And so by trying to do it in a more read a draft in a compressed timeline, you get a different sort of feel. There's a different kind of energy to it. You can return to it and edit it and be like, okay, well, none of this is good, but at least it's like by the same person. And mm-hmm. now you can catch it up with that more evolved writer or something like that. And so it'll be interesting to see how, how that goes. Dan Riley, thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. I'd like to thank Dan Riley, Sarah Goulet, and the teams at Little Brown and Company and GQ Magazine. Remember to check out my portrait of Dan at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture or on Instagram at williamjesslaird or at imageculture. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. If you like the show, leave us a review, a rating, or share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.